Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today, we have a very interesting conversation with Peter Wang. Peter Wang is the CEO of Anaconda, the Python tools and data sciences company, and has become a dear friend of mine over the last few years. And we've been having regular conversations about all kinds of interesting things. Well, but guess what? This weekend, my wife and I were driving up from our farm to where our daughter and granddaughter and son-in-law live. And we decided finally to listen to Peter Wang's interview with Lex Fridman back, I guess it was in late 2021, as I recall. Is that right, Peter? Mm-hmm. December of 21. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it was very interesting. I mean, it was just actually a lot of it was riveting. Then suddenly, Peter said something that went doing. <laughs> and ever since, I can't get it out of my head. And so yesterday, Peter and I were chatting and I said, hey, Peter, let's do a podcast on this. And he said, let's do it. So here we are. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Jim. Good to be back. Yeah, this is. Uh, I like what you've done with this place. It's been 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 a while since our, our previous my previous appearance on the podcast, and you've had a really fantastic cast of characters come through. So glad to be here. I got to say, it's been a lot of fun, and it helps make me smarter. You know, as I always say, hang out with people smarter than you are, and at least a little bit of it will rub off. We'll rub off. That's right. <laughs> anyway, today's topic. Many people on our podcast and in the world of people that we know talk about something called the meaning crisis. You know, John Verveke has talked about it quite a bit. And, you know, he talked about it as the breakdown of the two worlds model, where at least in the West, we tended to believe in heaven and earth and well, and maybe hell too. Some do, some don't, but two separate magisteriums run by different rules, right? You can't calculate physics in heaven, you know, famously, how many angels will dance on the head of a pin, right? That kind of stuff. And that, that for at least educated people, many educated people started to break down after the enlightenment. And the question is, does that leave us at drift in the universe, right? That's one, one hypothesis. Peter came up with an incredibly interesting, simple, but the more I thought about it, hugely powerful lens with a completely different perspective on the meeting crisis, though I may ask him to see if he can tie it back to Verveke's vision as well. And that is, if I get it right, Peter, feel free to correct me because I was just we were listening to it while we were, I was driving up the road. It was Peter's hypothesis that we call the meeting crisis is first and foremost a manifestation of the fact that most of our decisions that we make as modern people in advanced economies have very little consequence. Is that the, is that is that it, Peter? Yes, I believe my exact quote on the podcast with Lex was it was to say something like, you know, meaning meaning comes from making consequential choices. I think that's how you did phrase it approximately. And when I've been just thinking about this and thinking about it, it just ramifies every which way. So why don't you start off by, you know, expounding on what you were trying to communicate with that extraordinarily simple but impactful observation. 
Well, thank you again. I I was just riffing with Lex, right? But it's something that I'd been coming to because Lex asked questions like, "Oh, what's what is love?" and you know things like that. And so I was riffing with him on this. And and where I where I came from with this, I think is, well, it, actually, I, I there's a variant of this that I'll get into. But let's just look at the, the the phrase itself, right? Meaning comes from making consequential choices, and and every part of that really matters. So number one, there must be an actual choice for the agent or the individual to make, or as close to it as possible, if you believe in the concept of free will and choices and all these things. If we take that as a snapshot, then the idea that an agent believes they have choice and they can make a choice, right? They have to basically, and a choice is not simply a preference. A choice in this case, I mean, quite specifically, something that induces an irreversible change. So if you can make a choice and then you can control Z and undo it, it's not really making a choice, right? A choice is something that creates this this irreversible. There's a fork in the road, and you take the 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 road less traveled by, or the road more traveled by. Whichever you do, you take that road, and you're going down that road. And the other part of it is the consequential is also important, and and it's important in a sort of a, a counterintuitive way. It's not just that it has an impact on you; it's that you can see the impact it has on you. And this is a, this is an important distinction as we get to talking about game A and game B and sort of the meaning crisis in modernity, it's not merely like objectively is there consequence, right? Every little thing we do has a consequence. A butterfly flaps its wings, you know, halfway across the world and it changes the weather, things like that. We, we can sort of intellectually know about emergence and complexity and all these things. But I think from, a, from just the lens of meaning and meaningful choices and meaningful decisions, the, the consequence I'm talking about there is something that is perceivable to the decider, to the agent making the choice. And furthermore, they have to see the causal link, right? I pull this lever and these things happen and, you know, like a Rube Goldberg machine of things happen. And then a boot comes down and kicks me in the head. And so, okay, I've made a consequential choice and whether it felt good or not, it was a meaningful choice. And I think the, the all of this then is, is really an expansion again on this basic concept, which is that when we feel like, we are actual live players, right? To use that term. When we're live players in the environment, then we're constantly making meaningful and consequential choices. Or sorry, we're making consequential choices and that gives us meaning. It means that we are live in this environment. The, the opposite of this is, is sort of, you know, a thing that's been explored quite a bit, like, you know, the matrix or other kinds of things, or, you know, the many worlds and multiple dimensions and parallel universes. What if none of our decisions make any difference? Because all decisions are always being made all the time. It creates a certain kind of existential nihilism, right? Because none of it matters. I mean, you know, Rick and Morty actually explores this beautifully, right? Because of every single decision you make can be undone, or you can always hop away to an alternative universe, and leave the consequences of your actions, then you end up sort of living in this nihilistic sort of state. And you become a hedonist, right? You can enjoy the benefits of whatever little thing in the moment, and then you can walk away from any of the the downside consequences. And so this is something which I think in the, what? In the zeitgeist is explored quite richly, right? But but maybe not not articulated in this kind of a nugget as as uh, I said it on Lex. But anyway, and and I would say that having we can explore this thing, this concept, and and all this stuff. But there's actually a piece of that's missing, which if our friend, our dear friend Chandra was here, would would maybe um, add a little bit more reflection. But anyway, I'll just I'll just end there and see where you want to go from there. 
Yeah, and one and our, our subsequent conversation yesterday, you made the important point, which I think you, you got in passing here, but I think I'd like to pull it out. And that is that this consequence that we're talking about is not eventual consequence. It's not like I did the right thing and 20 years from now I'll be healthier. But you have <laughs> right. to have some consequences in a short time loop. I don't know what that short time loop is, but you call it the same day maybe or within a day or two, something like that. Well, no, not quite. Actually, I can see why you got to there from there. And I would actually say this is this is an important part of this. Okay, there this is, is, I really want to dig in. I figured I didn't have this quite right. Let's dig into this. Yeah, yeah. Let's dig into this. If you're uh, – there's a great far side with the with these two paramecium. And the one paramecium who's got the eyelashes and looks like the woman, she's like lecturing the other paramecium sitting in a chair. It's like stimulus response, stimulus response. Is that all you do? And it's um, really kind of funny because in this in, – and the reason I go to that particular far side – is because what you're articulating is a very, I would say it's an intuitive place to go to from this. But, but the thing is this, the, subje- the subject, the subjective actually holds a very important part in this thing, which is that the more you can actually understand how the world works, the longer temporally and also the broader geographically, the loop of consequence can run. If you don't, if you don't understand how anything works, you know, if you're just like a, a, a baby, like the hardware that we got from the from the savannah, right? And you're just a, a baby human being, you grew up, no one explained how anything works, then all you know is like pain and you know, sugars taste sweet, you know, something's hurt, ouchy. And so the, you're still making meaningful decisions, but your loop of causality and therefore your model of of consequence and consequentiality is rather limited. But the more intelligent you become, the more perceptive you become, maybe to a point where you start building trust with other humans and you can actually use other people's cognition to run your consequence and causality loops, then you can actually build deeper meaning. But if you are an atomized individual who is only able to live within the zone of your five senses, then yes, your, your, your ability to perceive things, your ability to model consequence and your, therefore your ability to mine meaning from your daily activity is rather limited. You can only go so deep. Yeah, and this is where I started to see this connection between Verveke's two-world model and Wangism, right? To give it a name. <laughs> now you gave it a name. Now I you gave, gave it, it a name. name. Wangism. Damn it, Jim. Yep. And and that is that, you know, let's say, for instance, as I like to do as a sort of an obnoxious atheist, I like to hold up. How does an atheist light a cigarette? I hold my hand up and say, God sucks, right? And, <laughs> and you know, I can do hey, that. One in a million times it works. So, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the you know, point is that if I were embedded, let's say, in 11th century medieval Europe, where everything was totally enveloped in Catholicism and yep. everyone was a true believer in literal hell and all that. If I even started to do that, all my neighbors would start beating on me, pulling, pulling my hand down, saying, Jim is drunk again. And if he does that, he's going to go to hell. And, you know, he's such a right. nice guy. We want to if be you're a woman, you get dunked as a witch, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Right. So, so the, so here's the thing. There's a, there's a few points then we can sort of elucidate on this, which is Let's, let's take the social aspect of, of it out, right? So that it's not about what the other humans around you might do to you on the basis of your things. Let's just look at the model that you're running in your head as an 11th century, you know, agrarian peasant steeped in the Catholic, sort of Catholicism in the, in the West. So what ends up happening there is your model of causality is your, that's your model. That's the software running in your head, right? 
you can generate meaning from as if consequence. It's not just physical consequence. It's as if consequence. Okay. So unpack so that a little bit for us. What I mean, if. what I mean, as if consequence. So if you really believe that it's, you know, it's really unfortunate. Everything we see has to come through this lens of perceptions, basic Kant sort of stuff, right? So you may observe some phenomenology, uh, a Buddhist from that time may observe the same phenomena. You may observe some phenomena and you're going to interpret it in a, through a particular lens. If you're truly steeped in the religion of the time, you're going to see everything through that lens, right? Just as a Hindu would, just as a Buddhist would. And so when you look through that lens, you will see God's action in everything. And you will, so your model, again, this is what I'm talking about, the model of causality. That model of causality is intellectual, is subjective. It's not objective because causality is predicated on time, which is, you know, we can get into the metaphysics of this, but then you pull your gun and shoot me. There's a very deep rabbit hole. There's a deep rabbit hole there <laughs> about just the nature of how we put all that together. But the point is that causality itself embeds a, an element of the subjective, right? And so the narrative you run about what actually happened out there is it, it will include, you'll drag along your religious perspective into that. And then the consequence that comes from that is it comes, it builds on top of that, right? So if you literally believed that, you know, lightning struck over there because, you know, Zeus was angry, then when you do something, this is where superstition comes from. You do something and lightning strikes and you're like, oh, fuck, I like a really angered Zeus, right? And that's, but that can still generate meaning for you. This is why people build temples. This is why people do all these things. Despite a lack of objective consequence, consequence and objective causality, the subjective causality is enough. And in fact, when you then bring in the fact that multiple people can communicate and you can create intersubjective frames, now you bring in a whole additional set of things. And this is then what takes us into the game A and into, into the idea that in the modern day, we've created modernity where people are making lots of little little choices, but they're as if choices, they're preferences, but they don't really change or swing consequences in a way that hits deeply, in a way that, that hits the integral self. It's going to you know, change which beer you got in your fridge, the color of your car. But a lot of these things, you know, you get, you know, BS medals and roles and titles and all these other kinds of things. You get bank accounts credited and debited. But it, but a lot of times, a lot of things that people get from their decisions and their choices in the day-to-day -day life, they're really just playing this game, this, this intersubjective game that's emerged. So the thing, you know, the thing that we came up with yesterday or that we talked about yesterday in our conversation was the concept of – was the, the fact that people could build cathedrals, right? And people would build – they would spend their entire lives, stonemasons and carpenters and peasants and, and architects, they would spend their lives laying down stones for – a cathedral, which their children wouldn't live to see, right? That is really something else. But it was meaningful for them as they were toiling and doing this. And so to some extent, you could almost see that the, the belief systems, the intersubjective things that kind of could survive, they were the ones that could organize people and route meaning back to them through their decisions. But at every single day, you think you're like a peasant, you I mean, in the, in the whatever, 1300s, you barely got enough to eat. There's famine. There's all these kinds of things going on, plagues. And you wake up every day to chisel some stone, to build this like shell of a cathedral, which one day might be great. But you've got meaning. You got meaning in doing that, even though you're suffering, right? And you're making those decisions every day. You're going to go do that. So I think that's, um, anyway, we can sort of take, stop there and then 
where do you want to go from there? Yeah, let's do one one fork first and then a second. Mm-hmm. One that I often use in talking about late stage game A is the phenomena of going to Walgreens, the, the drugstore chain, and looking at 200 varieties of shampoo, right? Right. And, you know, I've tried Personally, I've, I've used the same shampoo for the last 50 years, basically. My wife moves around a little bit, so sometimes I'll use her. <laughs> I can't tell the fucking difference, tell you the truth, right? Mm-hmm. If, if there's any difference, it's below my level of perception. It's like the difference between the top 100 violinists in the world, right? I used to be a violinist, and so I can tell a terrible violinist from a good one. I didn't know that. You used to play violin? Yeah, hell yes. I, I play fiddler. violin. That's we should we should we should fiddle together someday. That'd be great. That would be fun. That'd be fun. But but you know the top hundred violinists, I couldn't tell them apart really. And the uh, all of the shampoos at Walgreens are satisfactory for cleaning your hair. And yet there's this whole industry of of chemists designing and marketers marketing and factories manufacturing, all so that we could go into Walgreens and have 200 varieties of shampoo. And there, for sure, is a choice with very, very minimal objective consequences. I suppose there must be some subjective consequences. I buy brand X and I feel good about myself because I'm parsimonious. You know, I know plenty of parsimonious people who say if X is as good as Y and it's 30% less, then only an idiot would buy Y. And on the flip side, there are people who would buy Y because, oh, this is the prestige brand of shampoo. And I am pampering myself, what they call it now, self-care, because I have chosen brand Y at 30% more for the same chemicals, basically. So how does that get into this, right? Well, that gets that gets in, yeah. So I think so. A lot of the stuff all sort of melts together, and so you know, there's there's a, a lot of folks now are coming out of the woodwork to identify as Girardians, right? Talk about mimetic desire, but if you use less fancy terms and you look at some of the uh, the OG work on some of this from Thorsten Veblen, right, and conspicuous consumption, consumption, yeah, and uh, and the theory of the leisure class, and when you look at all this stuff, this this gets to the thing I was just talking about earlier, which is the intersubjective. Right, which is that when your when your decisions, sorry, when your choices have consequence in the intersubjective realm, that's an interesting loop to run. But that that loop only runs; it's only important if your underlying Maslow, if the lower tier of the Maslow hierarchy is taken care of. Right? If you are, if you were not middle class, I'll just put it this way: I think it's a consequence of actually middle class. And industrial era manufacturing creating a boom in what we can call consumer culture, right? And what is consumer culture at the end of the day? There's a few underlying components of consumer culture. One of them is that it's an it's an aspect of alienation. So you're alienated from the means of production. You're alienated from a lot of sort of connection to the makers of things, and you yourself maybe don't make many things. You consume, and consumption has meaning. And you have no idea where they come from or how they're made, right? You know, they- right. There's actually a fantastic. There's a well, and there's an interesting video. I think it's who is it? It's a oh, what's his name? The, the Milton Friedman, and he's going on about this pencil, and no one knows how. Like no, one, like all the little pieces of the pencil come from different places, and the the beauty of capitalism is it organizes these things and all this stuff, and it's like. A hilariously interesting little thing, pre-COVID supply chain crisis, right? But but when you look at this, this this alienation was seen as a as a good thing to some extent, right? Because you could separate the the need to make from or the, the manufacture from the consumption, and you could scale things, and you have consumer choice as a terminal value, which it turns out it's not really. And so anyway, the point here is that I think this is distinctly a middle class phenomenon because you're running your identity 
right? Your identity comes from ultimately your, your theory of self is that you are a live agent. No one wants to think they're an NPC or, or a simulation. Everyone wants to think they're a live player. An NPC, they're by an the agent. way, for people, right. is a non-player character. In computer games, there's characters running around who aren't actual real people, even in multiplayer games. And those are called NPCs. And this yeah, they're become, just computer, yeah, yeah, they're just little computer, little zombie things moving around for you to interact with in the environment. Yeah, they're right? fi- typically they're done as finite state machines. So I imagine today they're probably throwing stronger AIs at them. But anyway, it's a term of quasi-abuse in the world. Peter and I hang out on that. Uh, you it's know, not a compliment. It's not a compliment. <laughs> you're running around and you're basically a program. You're not making, you're not a real. Player. Well, and, and an accessible, another, another version of this is like, if for those who like the, the, uh, who watch the show Westworld, right. Is that you're one of the, you're one of the, essentially the robots uh, in the simulation and you have your program and you're running on your loops. And so the point is that people don't like to see themselves that way. They want to think they're real. They want to think they're, you know, live players. And part of that is making consequential decisions, making choices. I have freedom. And so I'm making these choices because I'm free and no one's constraining me. I'm free. And so the issue here is that if you are, if your identity comes from making these choices and, and you, and you mostly are making choices in this intersubjective realm or in, you know, consumer sort of different consumer options and preferences within a certain zone, that's fine. But if you are anywhere near the liminal, and that is the, the, the underclasses as well as the upper classes, both interface with real consequential life and death sort of decisions. Like if you're very rich, you might say, well, if you're really rich, you're insulated from all sorts of stuff. You can cover all your medical expenses. You can fly around on private jets. What's the issue? The issue is if you're really rich, all sorts of people are coming after your money. If you're really rich, it's probably because you have businesses, you have property, you got all sorts of stuff. And you, people are coming after those things. People are scamming you. People are angling to take over your businesses or to destroy your companies or whatever. Rich people have rich people problems. They can't afford to live in a world where they feel, you know, feel safe and all these things. They might live a very bougie or beyond bougie. I guess they live a luxurious life, but they know that there are people that might kidnap their children for ransom. There's people that are going to scam them, right? They're just like taking their phone and like plopping their passcode and then like stealing their uh, Apple iCloud account or something, right? Hey, you know, I don't know if you're watching. And if you're poor... Yeah, you, know, huh? you have to. I, I was going to say, you know, the the fucked up problems of the rich. We're watching Succession at the moment, right? So good, so <laughs> good, so good. And so, but yeah, but if you're if you're poor, right? If you're poor, you also can't afford to bullshit yourself, right? Every single turn of a card could be life or death for you and and your children as well, right? The way or they walk to school you, in the mornings. At least put you yeah. out on the street if you don't, if you make- Exactly. Miss your boss off, get fired from your, you've now worked yourself up to assistant manager at Wendy's, get fired from that and your ass is on the street in two weeks, right? Right, right. And so it's extremely, in those cases, you, you know that your decisions matter. It causes you stress, right? Just, just to be clear, meaning doesn't necessarily mean happiness. In this case, meaning simply means that- you lived a meaningful life. And when you, when you, you know, when you look at, um, let's take succession then, right? When Logan Roy talks about when he, you know, there's that, well, this is not a spoiler, I think, but you know, he, he admonishes his children in a recent episode and he says, you're not serious people. That, right? that, of the, that line, Cillia and that I, line. We, we repeat that line back and forth so often. That's the best line in the whole series. It's so amazing. And, and you can look at, let's look at, you know, Logan and, you know, he tries to do all these things to seem like he's as tough as his dad, right? And it's like, you didn't come up scrappy the way his dad came up scrappy. And you see this in immigrants, you see this in first 
first generation wealthy, the people who had to like basically tooth and nail claw their way up through some, you know, horrid set of circumstances usually and hustle and fight to to build the fortune, their children oftentimes are just not as hard as they are. Like they're and 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 then in the case of the Roy children in particular and Shiv the 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 actress who plays Shiv, she's so excellent at manifesting this, right? Where she clearly wants to see herself as an impactful, serious person. And every single turn, she just, it's like, you're such a rich little narcissist, right? You're like every single thing that happens. It's so amazing that, you know, she does a great job playing that, that, that character, but that character is exactly this manifestation. She wants you making consequential choices, but it's like, you know, the, in the very beginning, not the very beginning, but one of the, I think, season one episodes when like the contract or the negotiations come through and like, oh, they're taking away the PJs. You know, it's like you know, a meeting, you know, consequential decision for you is that you have to sign on a deal where you lose your private jets, maybe. Right. And that's not really that consequential ultimately. Right. So I think this is the, the, the interesting thing is that coming back to kind of the, the, the origin point of, of this conversation, meaning doesn't necessarily mean you're like all fulfilled, like you can go to Burning Man and tell everyone how how meaningful your life is, right? Meaning simply, it it just means meaning. It's like, you can look back and say, I did things, I chose to do things. And as a consequence of these choices, I ended up here. And for me, in my personal journey as an entrepreneur, it has been, it's really, I feel very blessed that I can look back and say, there were specific moments in time when I, when I came to a fork in the road, and as the joke goes, I took it. Right. I decided that I would actually not sleepwalk my way through a decision point. And this is something maybe a lot of people, again, in the middle class don't understand is that inaction is a choice. It is an intentional choice. Every single day you could you could wake up in the morning and decide, you know what? I'm done. I hate my job. I hate my boss. This place sucks. I I'm away from my kids and I'm away from my wife and I whatever. And like, why am I doing this? I'm done. You could just decide that. And people do that occasionally. They, they'll buy a they do van. do it occasionally. But most people wake up in the morning. But that's because they got pushed to a brink. But yeah. most people wake up in the morning sleepwalking their way through a routine. And this is the game A move. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, if you come back to this, what game A is really, really good at doing is giving people as if choices, tiny little stringing people along with a series of small as if choices that ultimately reduce their optionality and their, their option space in the future, but they feel like a real choice, right? So like, oh, do you want to increase your credit line a little bit? Oh, you know, we should move into a bigger house or you should do yeah. this or you should do that. These little things. And ultimately there's a meta choice being made, which is you should not radically change your state of mind. You should not radically adjust your perspective on the world because it's fine, right? Again, every single day we wake up and we continue mostly as a small epsilon from the day before, but that's a choice. We could choose to have a dramatic delta from yesterday, but we don't most of the days. Yeah. Well, I got one. I got one for you. Let's go back to the '60s, right? What was okay. Timothy Leary and Baba Ram Dass's mantra, which was "Turn on, tune in, and drop out." And yep. hundreds of thousands, at least, and probably millions of people did just that. They took LSD. They had a powerful experience which does pull mm-hmm. the, the, the shades away from the window. And you actually can see reality in sort of a starkly unprogrammed way for a couple of hours. And then, you know, some percentage of those people said, you know, this is ludicrous horseshit, right? I am the, <laughs> right. This is just utterly ludicrous. So I drop out 
of college. This was very, very common in yep. my day in the early 70s. And three carloads of us will do this. And we'll, this is actually a, sto- a personally meaningful story. Three carloads of kids, 12 kids at college, after doing heavy drugs, decide that this is all total bullshit. They open a map, have one of them close their eye, put their finger down on it, and they all get in their car and drive there and buy a farm and start a hippie commute. Right. Right. And this was covered in another excellent show, Mad Men, right, where you could see the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s and the Don Drapers of the world figured out, right, that, oh, these kids have basically disconnected from the previous institutions, which, number one, we're trying to send them to the jungles of Vietnam to get slaughtered. Number two, we're completely missing that you could actually manufacture desire. And that's a hell of a drug if you can make desire, right? And that's, and that's of course, what these micro choices are, right? That's right. Should I have the, uh, the uh, McDonald's double cheeseburger or the quarter pounder? Talk about a micro choice that's been you know, studied by armies of psychologists to have you at the point of indecision just long enough that it feels like a real choice, right? Well, and, and you know, the, the, the thing I always like to do is encourage people, if you want to have a study in just how the world currently works, is if you go back and look at ads from magazines and newspapers in the 50s, it's amazing. Car ads in particular are hilarious because they have a lot of text. There's narration. There's all the stuff about what a Cadillac would do for you, what an Oldsmobile is. And it's like, but it's, it's really about the, it's about the substance. And the 60s were really when the ability to make aesthetics and vend aesthetics and to manufacture desire at scale, all of that emerged, which is one of the reasons Mad Men is one of my favorite shows is because it talks the psychology of this. It's a period piece, a lovely period piece. The writing is excellent and the actors um, and actresses are absolutely excellent. But in that, they, it's a period piece focusing on really interesting time, which is when people move from substance to, to aesthetics. And so you're now consuming and you're vending the aesthetics of a thing. You're selling the appeal of a thing. You know, there's a there's one of the episodes where they have the famous um, Volkswagen Beetle, the lemon ad. Remember that that ad is like the Beetle is like lemon, and they throw it down like the fuck is this thing, right? It's like it completely blew their minds that you could advertise in this countercultural way, because in a way, and this gets to a couple different pieces that we can then you know we have now now fork in the conversation. You know, children are always looking to do something different than the parents. People are always looking to rebel a little bit. Um, but then you're always, but there's this thing about like, if you get too good at sealing off um, and creating a domesticated environment culture, everyone gets their white picket fence in the suburbs. Like it's not, people don't actually want to be the same as everyone else when you get to a certain point. And so you could vend to the counterculture, but it turns out not everyone wants to be the same exact counterculture as well. So you have to then create bullshit differences that are cheap. It's an arbitrage. Can I create aesthetic differences that actually are the same substance, right? And you see this with shampoos. You see this with luxury handbags, right? The actual Louis Vuitton or whatever Chanel handbag comes from the exact same factory as the knockoffs. But then they put a little bit of something different on it, some QR codes and some little bit styling differences. And now one costs literally thousands of dollars and the other costs 50 bucks, Right. Or less. 20, 20, I got one for my daughter, $20 on the streets of New York oh, one time. Look, don't brag about a $20 Chanel bag, Jim. Don't do it publicly. All right. That's not how this <laughs> works. You're supposed to tell people you paid thousands for it. No, because as I said, well, you know, my value is parsimony. Right. So I am I am flashing my parsimony flag. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, but but this is I think this is the whole the whole point of this is that 
we as an as an entire infrastructure game A is there to manufacture bullshit differences and differences without distinction. Yeah, here's one that's my favorite. Uh-huh. Think about the game played between Audi, BMW, and Mercedes. Right. Okay. Yeah, they're they're all nice cars. They're fun to drive. They all and if you look at the models, they're remarkably close in price for you know the same size cars, etc. And yet they each have in in people's minds some distinction. You know, I'm a BMW person. I'd never drive a Mercedes, or I'm a Mercedes person. I'd never well, drive an Audi. And 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 those things are very subtly and carefully crafted so that there's a narrative wrapped around what are essentially indistinguishable vehicles. I feel like there is a number one, they are distinguishable, having driven all three different kinds of vehicles in a particular price point. So there are some actual differences, but for the most part, I, I take what you're saying, which oh, is that yeah. in general, and, and actually, this is here's a concept for you, right? Industrial capitalism ultimately is a driver of commoditization. And whenever something is reduced to a commodity, a cartel forms to stabilize the bottom end of the price. This is true for aluminum. This is true for oil. Literally, OPEC. You know, <laughs> it's a cartel, like, right? Uh, cartel, right? But this here's the thing: because we're able to manufacture desire at scale, because we're able to actually manufacture, well, condition a tremendous amount of the middle class to accept consumption of slightly different preferences to be meaningful and to engage in that loop. What we've actually done is we've commoditized desire itself. And so cartel forms around different price points to essentially offer the same product, but with slightly different color options. And so the commoditization of desire is, that's a hell of a thing, right? Because ultimately, if you're a human being, if you actually manifest your innate libido in life, in the Jungian sense, not in the sexual sense, right? But if you have this energy of of this life energy and creativity, every person is a wildflower, but we grow them in these greenhouses, and we condition them and shape them. And so at any point, you could take them out of the greenhouse, take that potted plant out, plant it in the forest, and it could be blossom to something much greater. But you have to outrun the forces of industrialization that build ever bigger and bigger greenhouses. So I think this is the, the thing that, you know, you talk about the counterculture in the 60s and everyone dropping out. And then immediately those kids, once they got through with their bad acid trips, you know, a bunch of them turned to like PJ O'Rourke, right? Where they got, where it's Asian guile beat a bad haircut or something, right? And he, he goes to become this like shill for the Cato Institute, like, you know, libertarian shill for the, you know, the remainder of his years. And so you, you have to actually not just drop out, not just defect. You actually have to tap into a system, an alternative system of meaning making that's durable. And that is not something you can do as an atomized individual. That is not something you can do in an alienated mode. Yeah, this is a very important turn, and it's why you know when I see so much of the the personal change literature, I go, oh yeah, the person will go through their process and they'll maybe make a few improvements, but unless they find a way to embed themselves into a culture that resonates with this new personal change, they're going to get sucked back into the Borg. It happens again and again and again. Yeah, or or they die lonely hermits. I mean, it's also very sad, right? I mean, Plato ultimately was in, was not incorrect in in this idea that that you know humans are not humans are social creatures, and so I think in this case, a lot of the Western personal change stuff and and there's a 
Actually, Jamie Wheel just wrote a hilarious little essay about, you know, a, a thing that happened this weekend on, on his newsletter. Oh, I, I read the first half of that. Yeah, about his, his wife's Good. experience with these sisters and all of their, all the stuff, you know, it's yeah. like the, but anyway, it, it's just, it's, it's a hilarious thing because in the Western mode, and this is going to, now we're going to draw on some stuff from, from our friend Chandra, the Western mode is still very individualistic. And it's very goal oriented. It's very doing and you know action oriented. And it's what are you doing? How are you doing? What are you 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 you? Which then conditions us to think about me 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 me. And it's not we right. So when you talk about these like transformational retreats that people go on and they do these kinds of things, it's an individual journey. It's the self and improving the self and all these things. And ultimately, you can only do so much perfecting of the self. At some point, you get good enough self-improvement and you really need to go into group improvement and find your tribe and find your community and go through go through the transformation as a group, as friends, as a, as a family, as a kin group or whatever. And there's hard work to be done there too, right? And there's ways that groups can exist in integrity with each other. There's groups where it's, it's actually a lot of transactional bullshit. And I think in the in Silicon Valley right now, there's a lot of younger people who are trying to do these kinds of things, but they have incredibly nasty, narcissistic little polycules that are have like you know very exploitative people and abusers and all this like darkness in it, because they're still rooted in the there's this like fundamental original sin of Westernism and Cartesianism, which is the isolation of the self from others. And I think the a way to rectify some of this is incorporating you know the, the Chandra's perspective on the doingness versus beingness, right? And so even in my articulation, going very back to the beginning of this conversation, the idea that meaning comes from making consequential choices. Well, that is a decision. That's a doing. It's an action. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of generating meaning from acting. But there are other ways to generate meaning from mere, from mere being. And this is something that people in the East, I think, are very, you know, there's a tradition of that in the East, and there's not so much of that in the West, although there is a little bit. So I think this is where, and and you know, where Chandra likes to, the thing he likes to make fun of is when in the West we take things that should be beingness and we turn them into competitive doingness. We take serotonin things and turn them into adrenaline things or dopamine things, right? So yoga becomes competitive hothouse yoga as opposed to sort of a being sort of try, trying to you know meditate or whatever. And so I think in this case, when I talk about meaning coming from making those consequential choices, that's still just one part of it. There's other ways to meaning too. It's not the only part of it, but it's the one that I think helps frame out some of the degeneration of the West because we ha- we are filled with as if choices. But there's a whole nother you know dimension of it, which is the beingness and generating meaning from being and being present. And I think this gets to this touches maybe a little bit on the Verveki stuff, but I don't know if we want to go there just yet. Yeah. yeah, the other conversation we subsequently had on this, I tossed out, you know, experience I had late last week, which, and this is when decisions have consequences in a very physical grounded way. Mm-hmm. I described my wife and I were patrolling our, our farm, part of it's wooded, some of it's fairly steep, and uh, trees from time to time fall down across the, the Jeep trails. And so we always carry a chainsaw with us. And well, was heard off, there was a, a medium-sized log down across a steep trail, which there's no way around. You know, it's a steep bank on one side, the steep fall away on the other. So I had to get out, undo the chainsaw, go up and inspect the tree. You know, all right, 
can I deal with this? Or is this a job I have to go back and get the tractor for? And I look mm-hmm. at it and go, yes, I can. And okay, how am I going to do it? What order? Because cons- you know, keep in mind now, if I can't, I'm not successful, we'll have to terminate our mission. So that has consequences. Right. Second, you know, if your chainsaw is not working properly, you can get it stuck or you can have the chain break and come back and whack you. You can have mm-hmm. the log roll on you, break your leg or worse. Uh, there's a whole bunch of medium to high consequence results of every decision you make. And so you get up there, you size the thing up. Yes, I can do it. Okay, how do I do it? Do I start in the middle? Do I start at this end? Do I do that? When this falls, is it going to bind on the blade? Do I need to cut from below or cut from above? Do I cut a notch? Do I not cut a notch? And every single one of those decisions is embedded in a kind of not a high dimensional, but a you know middle and dimensional space of alternatives and risks and quotients for success. And I com- I compare and contrast that with a day at the work as a middle manager, right? right? Where, okay, I went to a meeting and we talked about when we're going to schedule the next meeting. And I, we talked about God knows what, and what the fuck was all that about? And I used to tell people when I come back to the office for a weekend at the farm, you go, you know, at the farm, I can fix most things with a sledgehammer. And I'm really temp- tempted to use that uh, <laughs> policy around here. But and the other, the other analogy I had when we were thinking about this, this from this other lens, this lens of the actual consequence, short-term physical, is whitewater canoeing, which my wife and I used to do a fair bit. And there, you know, do I go to the left of the rock or to the right of the rock? You get that wrong, and you may go over. And, it, and we used to do it in the spring when the water was high, and you really don't want to get dumped into a mountain river in March, let me tell you, having done it once. <laughs> and so these are very consequential in your brain. It's like super focused. You know, what's the nature of that ripple? Is there a rock in that? in that run through or not, right? If there is a rock, is it to the left or to the right under the water? And so you're making these real-time decisions and all those things have consequences. And perhaps that's why they are so attractive to us because we are able to use our our decision-making for things of consequence. There's different, so I hear you on all that, but let let me just expand on that a little bit. We are not merely physical creatures, right? And this is actually something I would encourage people to check out my videos. I usually don't shill my stuff, but I will say I did a really fun four-episode series with the STOA where I talk about some of my mental models. And one of the first ones I introduced is riffing off of Robert Persig's metaphysics and modeling the world at different levels of patterns. So there is a physical level there's a biological level. For humans, there's a social level or some animals, right? Social level. And then for humans, there's an intellectual level. And, and this is crude and it's not perfect. But the point is that it's a, it's a reasonable enough frame to look at a number of other things. So as humans, we cannot consider just the impacts to us physically. We, have to, we also have to look at the impacts to us at a biological level, at a social level, and at an intellectual level. And so what I mean, the reason I bring this up is because when you talk about physical consequence – that's, that's like the, the, the ground plane. You cannot avoid, like if a rock is going to hit you or if a tree is going to fall on you or you're about to fall off a cliff or you're going to drown in a river, most people have a pretty like intuitive feeling, a very gut level feel for the importance of that. But, you know, if you talk to anyone who's starved, anyone who's nearly died of thirst, if you talk to anyone who has been stung by an incredibly painful like jellyfish or something, you know, there's biological things too that we feel right? That are very, very impactful. And there's biological consequences we can see. 
And then above that, there's social consequences. Those are real too. The reason people physically get ill when they're about to go into a very difficult social situation is because they understand the consequences, that there are actual consequences, right? And intellectually too, and some people, only a small percentage of people play at a level where there are intellectual consequences, but for those who do play at that level, it's extremely tense, right? It's actually extremely consequential there too. So it is possible to have consequential decisions and choices at each of these levels. But what I would say is that I think it's important for people to get all of them as integral selves, as integral people. It's important to have all of those different layers and to understand that we are an integrated human being that has these different things, which is why, you know, there's a fet- there's a fetish thing in, again, in the Bay Area where people are trying to hunt their own food. I think at some point Mark Zuckerberg was shot a boar with a bow and arrow or something. And it's like, you know, and he cooked it and there's all this stuff. And it's, uh, it's a little bit hilarious, of course, thinking about that particular thing, but it's not necessarily a bad concept for people to connect to their food and to grow it and to actually, you know, see these kinds of things and be connected from the biological level up, right? But then it's also important for people to go all the way to the intellectual level too. I think if you want to exist in this modern world that is so intellectually driven by ideas, if you don't understand where your ideas came from, if you don't understand where the ideas might be going, then you're also at the mercy of a lot of other forces and dynamics. So the point is that there is an integral stack here. And the whitewater rafting is one thing, but I think about like a lot of younger people now who are social media influencers. And when you listen to the interviews with them and you think, and you listen to the, especially the ones who have the ones who noped out of it, right. Who are big influencers. And then it was simply too stressful for them. And they decided to exit that and just go back to normal life. And there's a few articles that have come around now in the last year about some profiling some of these younger people who had millions of followers on Instagram, hundred thousand dollar brand deals and all these things. And they noped out of it. But when you read those articles about those people and you look at their lives, Literally every single moment of their waking life is obsessed with how how they would project it, virtualize it, pull it into the simulacrum. And and it's incredibly, I mean, those are consequential decisions. That's that's meaningful. It's not pleasant. That's your live it's your livelihood. It's your livelihood, yeah. right? But it's it, but it's it's this it's a, it's an incredibly interesting profile. So I wouldn't say that they're exposed to any less risk or danger than you in a canoe, whitewater rafting down some river, right? But the the lack of the feeling that something is missing there is because they're existing purely in this one realm of the inner subjective, right? In that social strata, and worse, it's a virtualized one. And so this is sort of the the what is it the the dystopia that we have now with smartphones. And with the simulacrum, the pervasiveness of, of virtuality everywhere is that people are more and more sucked into modes of being that take them away from actually making consequential and integral decisions. Okay. So, so, let's, so you're making a distinction here. I think this is, this is good. So let's say you're influencer or let's also imagine your uh, middle manager politician at work who is yep. mostly spending their time stabbing people on the back and promoting themselves, et cetera. Those have consequences, right? Yep. But they're, they somehow don't seem to be full stack, right? Or they're not integrated in, into a person. So, you know, so it's sort of- Well, you believe, they have, you believe they have consequences. Yeah. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And that's actually a big yeah. distinction, right? I've, I've referenced this a lot in our conversations, but maybe never in the podcast, but Venkatesh Rao has this amazingly brilliant body of work called the Gervais Theory of Management and kind of Corporate Politics. 
It's beautiful and brilliant. I recommend everyone read it. It's, it's wonderful. And in the Gervais theory, the idea is that there are people, middle managers in the middle, who are in large organizations. They think they're making consequential decisions. They think they're climbing up the ladder. Actually, it's all bullshit. None of it really matters. The people at the very top, it matters. And the people, because they're sending strategy, they're actually, you know, di- you know, directing budget and all these things. And the people at the bottom, it matters because they're the actual grunts doing the work. But in the middle, and he calls it the clueless, right? There's a middle clueless tier of people who actually believe they're making consequential decisions. They're climbing up the corporate ladder. And it's like, yeah, you'll never get there. Like you just keep climbing that ladder, right? Keep going for it. And that's – so one thing I'll put here into the – bring into the aperture of the conversation. The other thing is the trope that we see all the time where – you know, some successful investment banker on Wall Street wins the game, has the big million dollar or actually more like $10 million condo in Manhattan. And they're staring out the window and they realize that that not, that's all bullshit. Like they won the game, but none of it means anything for them. Right. And they're sort of like both those things are sort of tied into the same thing. In the one case, the guy who wins at game A literally has won. They've made consequential decisions. They've, you know, fought and won the rat race. And it still doesn't feel meaningful. And then the other case, the person hasn't won yet, but they think they're winning, but actually they're just running a treadmill, right? Both cases, we have to ask ourselves, maybe through this lens, in what way is bullshit meaning? Because in the one case, the guy's getting bullshit meaning. And the other case, the guy won the actual stakes, right? They have like hard product, real estate in the middle of Manhattan. And they got fancy cars and they got all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like, they feel like, what was this all about, right? And so let's now go and try to stick this. Mm -hmm. We've talked all around it, but what we haven't yet tried to corral is why does this relationship of the life that we're in, at least putatively, lead to a sense of meaning crisis? Because, you know, the middle manager thinks his backstabbing has consequences, even if it doesn't, he thinks it does, and probably Mm -hmm. sometimes it does. The person that's choosing the shampoo, if they're hooked into a intersubjective model that they can brag to their friends that they bought shampoo X rather than Y, either to show off their parsimony or their eliteness, that's a choice that has some kinds of consequences. You know, why does, why does that we, do we say that the summation of the class of choices that we have end up producing a crisis in meaning? Well, I think what ultimately has happened here in the West is it's 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 a combination of a few things, but but just a few things. There's ultimately it is an alienation of individual lives from any concept of a transcendent sacred. And so part of it is secularization. The church offers something in this regard, uh, whether you believe it or not as an atheist. The point is it did offer something here in terms of vitamin sacred. In Eastern philosophy, like if you look at Confucianism, the sacred thread, it wasn't so much about religion, but it was actually ancestry, right? It was the idea that you are just one generation at the tip of a spear and you connect all of the hundreds of generations before you to all of the infinite generations that will come after you. So don't break that chain. Don't be the asshole that breaks that chain, right? Don't bring dishonor to the family. Don't right? bring dishonor to the family, right? And so in, all, in some of these things, there is a connection of self to the transcendent and a sense of sacredness to it. Now, in the West, we have cut this or abrogated this in a variety of ways, right? We have taken away, uh, you know, again, secularization of the church, right or wrong, good or bad. I mean, you know, 
a lot of things the church has done, as uh, you know, organized religion has done, has certainly earned itself some of the distrust that it's now reaping. But nonetheless, the idea of people, you think about how many people identify as being spiritual, but not religious. In the West, it's quite a, quite a number of people. And it's interesting because that means there is this latent desire for a connection to each other, a connection to some cosmic, sacred connectivity sort of thing. And I don't want to just over-rotate in this and say that it's all a immortality desire in people. I think people are okay with returning to the earth, but I think people crave a narrative of transcendence, something that places them not just as a random blip and a mayfly in the pond that disappears when the sun sets, right? So that ultimately, that lack of connection to, to a sake, to narrative of sacred, a transcendent narrative beyond the self, that then is reinforced by the fact that we have a consumer society where so much of the desires you feel can, when they show up, they manifest as little concrete desires that could be vended to. And so you kind of want people in a state of psychic imbalance, you know, again, to quote Mad Men, what is happiness? It's the moment before you need more happiness. And in the West, we actually, this is again calling back to our friend Chandra, right? We confuse all the time the term happiness and satisfaction. All the time. Happiness is everywhere. Like what could be, what could be better than giving people happiness? Well, it turns out happiness isn't the thing, right? And it's actually satisfaction. It's actually being grounded with your place in the world and who you are and being grounded in your place in the transcendent narrative right? What's that great Peter, Paul, and Mary song? Take your place now on the great mandala, right? Take your place. And I think in the West, through whether it's through you know, mass consumption, mass manufacture of desire, secularization, the alienation, in a geographic sense, alienation from being able to form community groups and actually have communities, right? Our car-driven culture, the explosion of suburbs and all these kinds of things, we no longer have common spaces. And you know, like the people in the strong towns talk about this all the time. You don't have the European plazas and squares. Everyone's driving around to the parking lot at the box store to go and buy crap that's made overseas to stuff in your houses because that's as if meaning, right? And so we are really quite alienated and we don't have we don't have a mandala to take our place on. So I think that's really the heart of a lot of the meaning crisis is that the lack of connection to each other, the lack of connection to our ancestry and to our you know eventual descendants, all of this, we're, we're just really the perversion, not perversion, the platonic anti-ideal, right, of truly individualized, atomized individuals. That's yeah, uh, like the Enlightenment, you know, this is pure verbake, you know, the Enlightenment cast away this framework of yep. meaning, and we have yet to replace it at least right. in a satisfactory fashion, with something else. And that is the big project. That is the thing we have to do. That is the thing we absolutely have to do. Yeah. Or, and I keep, I always, you know, again. It's no, you can't a, just, no, Jim, you cannot plug an LLM into everyone's brain. That's not, just not going not? to be the way to solve this problem. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Again, I'll riff Rutty in here a little bit. You know, I've never felt like I had a meaning crisis at all because uh-huh. I do, I do see a meaning. You know, as, as is well known to listeners of the podcast, I'm a total scoffer at gods and religion and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And always since I was 11, when I had an epiphany after spending two weeks studying comparative religion, all bullshit made up to control people. I now realize there's evolutionary dynamics and how those came to be and how they produce group cohesion and they get locked in. So my 
69-year-old self, so a little, a little less absolute about it than my 11-year-old self was. But nonetheless, cast that aside, I have a very simple meaning, if you want to call it that, which is that humanity or life on Earth may be the only life in the universe. We don't know. And the more you study it, the more you realize that it could be the only life on Earth, or it could be the only advanced life on Earth, or it could be the only generally intelligent life on Earth. So we think about going from bacteria to prokaryotes to multicellularity to having brains Mm -hmm. to passing, just recently passing the line of general intelligence. And if so, and if we're alone, that's a monumental obligation we have an opportunity to eventually bring the universe to life. So that is fork one on our human destiny is that Uh we need to keep getting stronger, not collapse, and eventually bring life or our digital descendants to the stars. That's fork one. Fork two, and we're also not too far away from this fork, is find out if we indeed are alone and if, if there is galactic civilization already out there waiting to bring us in or eat us, how do we relate to the other intelligent species in the galaxy? And Mm -hmm. until we know the answer to the fork, are we alone or are we not? It would seem that precautionary principle should say that we must preserve human life, generally intelligent life at all costs. And to put that at risk as we are doing strikes me as, you know, grossly immoral within my Ruttian view of the purpose that I choose to impose on the existence of human life. Yeah. So this is, and that makes total sense to me, right? Until we know different, we can work under the, it's not morally or ethically incorrect to proceed under the assumption that we are the only intelligent life, in which case, holy shit, we'd better take good care of it, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Why isn't that enough meaning? Why is that not enough meaning? Well, that, that is, that is, but, but I'll, I'll have a couple of, I'll, I'll build on what you're saying here. So number one, yes, we should operate under that principle. It's a very simple, almost like Pascal's wager style thing, right? Where if there is other intelligent life, great, let's go up and meet it. And if there isn't, we better proceed like we're the only ones and really take good care of it because it's quite a precious thing. And so then, the, the other kind of the thing related to that is this is different now as a moral imperative than something uh, simple like the categorical imperative or it is different from, you know, some of the I think the, the enlightenment individualistic thing where, you know, man was created like the, the creator endowed every individual with some sacred right to this and that and the other. Meanwhile, please, you know, enjoy this food that my slaves <laughs> farmed, you know, but they, you know, I think there's there's a difference there in that. That's a very individualist sort of by assumption kind of argument. But then there's a very, I think, a very practical top-down moral argument, which is that we clearly have intelligent life here. We seem to be the only one so far that we've found. Now, we've only been – we've only known about electricity for like 100 years. So we're pretty early still, right? But, but, but we should take good care of it because it's a really precious thing. And so that's, that's a really great sort of – not de novo, but from first principles argument for defending life. And you're absolutely right then, I would say – pulling in something else, the moral foundations theory from Jonathan Haidt, you said the word obligation. And so for you, ultimately, for the subjective uh, frame of Jim Rutt, doing something you're obligated to do feels right, right? And that is how you generate meaning there. Now, if you are not wired that way with that particular moral virtue as a foundation, then you wouldn't, you'd be like, obligations are bullshit. Who are you to tell me what I should and shouldn't do? I don't need to serve the universe. I'm here to make beautiful art 
I'm here to enjoy yeah. myself. I'm here to blah, blah, blah. I'm here to defend my friends. I mean, all this like, you guys are talking all these words and all this shit. I'm here just to defend my friends and family and keep them safe and strong, right? There's all sorts of different moral foundations people can lean on as a way of generating uh, meaning. And so I just want to name that and call that out, that for you, that obligate service is one of those things. And the other thing I'd call out is that, yeah, you haven't had a problem with this in the sense that you actually came up before a lot of the infrastructure to asphyxiate meaning from the youth, before that dissociation asphyxiation came in, right? You came around at a time when when there was still a lot of direct interface to the liminal that was available to you in your youth. And so, uh, and then of course, through your professional career, you've been able to make, you know, consequentially meaningful choices and build all this stuff. So it's, no, it's, it's great that you have that, but not everyone's had that. And there's certainly a dynamic in the world that is starving and choking people out from having this. I think that's the thing to sort of, to call out from this as well, which is many of the things we put in place to give people as if choices or to give as if choices that have as if consequences are are actually bullshit, which is why it's so important for us who have this perspective to do more communication so that people can actually expand their causal loops, that expand their ability to measure, is this a consequential thing? And to even just to draw the awareness that sometimes your ability to perceive consequence requires you to lean on your friends. And so you better make some friends. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and here, here now, I think I can jump all the way back down the stack. We'll probably wrap it all up right. here, which is... Let's assume ruddism is the right set of values, right? That we're here to protect intelligent life until we can either bring the universe to life or take our place in the galactic civilization. But as you point out, for most people who have it, don't have various foundations of experience, didn't make the mistake of reading Foundation Trilogy when they were 10, you know, things <laughs> like that, right? That might not make so much sense. But if we had a culture where that was the value, right? Mm -hmm. It would support people in making decisions that were congruent with that value. And hence, what we're essentially, you know, if we believe in ruddism, and why not? Think of the name. There's no better name, right? <laughs> then uh, the only way to actually have people have meaning from pursuing ruddism, unless they happen to have my own peculiar trajectory in life, which very few will, is to develop a culture in which People are enculturated from a young age in that this is the reason why we're here on earth at this time and and then be modest enough to say, and this is, again, where ruddism is different than, than all these book religion, is that this is a transitory goal, right? Either we'll bring the universe to life or, or we'll find the galactic civilization or be well on our way. And then, then we'll choose some other objective. So this is not like some, it's not a foundation. It's a, we're thrown into the universe where we are 13.6 billion years from the origin. We have mm -hmm. this set of capacities, et cetera, but to, to organize folks so that their choices are consequential with respect to ruddism, there has to be cultural support for those behaviors. You know, it's just a very yeah, simple. Yeah, it, and it's it's actually, so you can call it rotism, but I will say I wrote a blog post about this in 2017. So there's a little bit of prior art, which is that in order for us to really advance humanity, and this is my blog post, it's called, it was in Rally Point, it was in the Rally Point Journal. So it was Freedom 2.0, towards the new ah. physics of human systems. And and I said that, look, in our, in our existing concepts in the Western Enlightenment Jeffersonian scheme, we think of freedom as freedom from other people. 
And so there's kind of an inherent concept of freedom of like, oh, your freedom to throw a punch ends at the tip of my nose or something like, you know, these kinds of things where we yeah, ultimately classic. view classic sort of stuff. Negative and freedom is called. Negative freedomism, right? Where right. we are really – we take a scarcity mentality towards this of every single thing you get to do, you're depriving other people of some ability to do their thing. It's important to have a framework for this because this is a lot of what goes on in modern life is demarcating where one person has you know rights or uh, privileges to do certain things from other people. So that – it's a necessary thing. And, but, and, it, and it's very important to understand that when this emerged – right after the era of the absolute king, right? Yeah. Where, where everybody in theory was the property of the king and the king could come and screw your wife on your wedding night. And by law, he had that right, right? Right. So we needed a new framework then because scarcity was all we knew and times were tough. But now as we move into a world where we can actually make enough stuff for most people, we actually could feed and house everyone on earth if we really chose to. But our or human organizations are not set up this way because we're still based on these old medieval feudal ideas of, of freedom, of rights, of property, and of these kinds of things. I mean, a lot of our economic systems are based in thinking from this, sprinkled in with a little bit of industrial era stuff. But the point is that Freedom 2.0 has to go beyond, I don't want people messing with me. Freedom 2.0 has to be the concept of uh, and I'm going to build on some, you know, someone who I have not brought up in this conversation so far, but it's a very important thinker is Jiddu Krishnamurti. And Krishnamurti has this core principle that freedom is not a reaction and freedom is not a choice. Freedom lies in choiceless awareness, right? And I was I added a thing to say that it's the awareness that you're substrate for empires of ideas. You have to start with that awareness first before you can get to real freedom. And so the idea of Freedom 2.0... Uh, let's unpack that just a little bit. Okay, yeah. I tried to read Krishnamurti, and it's basically some dude standing under a tree giving talks to people in fucking right? California. And I go, what the right. fuck's all this shit? But I do mean to get back at it. But So what does that mean? I'm a substrate for what you say. Well, he didn't say the substrate part. That's me. That's my building on it. He has the core. If you go to Krishnamurti.org or something like that, you go to the Krishnamurti website, there's the core teaching of Krishnamurti is just like this... this Almost like the, the heart sutra of what he taught was that truth is a pathless land. You cannot come to it through any organization, through any creed, through any dogma, priest or ritual or psychological technique or philosophical knowledge. You have to find it through the mirror of relationship and through understanding the contents of your own mind, through observation and not merely through intellectual analysis or introspective dissection. And man has built himself images as offensive security, religious, political, personal. These manifest as symbols and ideas and beliefs. And the burden of these images dominates our thinking and our relationships and our daily life. And these images are the causes of our problems because they divide man from man. Our perception of life is shaped by the concepts already established in our minds. This is the malware that Eric Weinstein talks about, right? right, right. So the content of our consciousnesses is all of these like bullshit as if things – Sorry, this is me riffing on Krishnamurti, not his actual thing. I'm literally reading from the, the website here, right? The content of his consciousness is his entire existence. The content is common to all humanity. This content is common to all humanity. And the individuality is the name, the form, and the superficial culture that he acquires from tradition and environment. So, so then he goes to this, the key line, freedom is not a reaction. Freedom is not a choice. It is man's pretense that because he has choice, he is free. Freedom is pure observation without direction, without fear of punishment and reward. Freedom is without motive. Freedom is not at the end of the evolution of man, but lies in the very first step of his existence. So anyway, 
it, it's a good thing to meditate on. It's some deep stuff there, really good stuff. And you can see shades of it in all the things that I've said here in this podcast and in, in other conversations. But then coming back to my blog post, because you talked about ruttism or ruttism. And my, in my blog post, I, I, I wrote that what's needed for a phase change in human civilization is a fundamentally new set of narratives about human agency, dignity, and even the meaning of humanity itself at both individual and collective levels. And all prior narratives are broken because they fundamentally rely on forcing this security and freedom trade-off that views individuals as being at odds with each other. Again, you see the shades of Krishnamurti in this, right? And, and economics even is also rooted in this, right? How do I take my piece of the pie from, and so you don't get my piece or I get your piece or something like that. And so if we can actually view humans, a more integrative approach in this current era with modern technology and modern knowledge of what emergence and collective dynamics could, could result in, a more integrative approach would view humanity and human identity as emergent and the endogenous result of human individuals embedded in societies of shared values instead of being at war with each other and needing freedom from each other. So, so that's the interesting thing. What the internet showed us is that people can find their tribe even though they're geographically dispersed. I've been talking with you for years. You're a dear friend. We've only met each other in person like a couple, three times. Twice. Right? Yeah, like tw- three times. Yeah. Three Once times. Off, three times. Yeah, three times. Right? Yep. Because you're off on the East Coast. I'm here in, in, in Texas. And so – so the idea that we can – and open source, the open source communities that create the modern software that runs the world and is building AI, they're geographically dispersed. So with the internet and with these other things, we're more than ever we're able to find our tribes. And so we can actually create new kinds of identities. Now, what Web 2.0 social media showed us is that there's bad ways to collectivize individuals and create substrates for identity. And you create QAnon, create all these kind of like conspiracy theory kind of folks. But Or the banality of Facebook or Twitter. Or the banality right? of Facebook and, and sort of the influencer culture on Instagram with everyone trying to be all glossed up with lenses on Snapchat. Yeah, there's, there's, there's anti-patterns and darkness there. But if we think about existential optimism, what, what could we do? And a positive version of this, we could actually create deeply powerful networked tribes. And this is where you get to Balaji network state kind of stuff, right? right. Deeply powerful network tribes. And to some extent, you know, actually, I wrote this in here because you said it's culture. I wrote this in here. 50 years ago, this simply was not a possibility. But technology, technology, economic society back then did not provide for this, right? But you, but now we can. And you might call this new narrative framework a culture and others might call it a religion. And I, I believe that for it to succeed, it must be a process. It's a process that gives rise to new flavors of culture that derive from existing hardwired tribal leanings. And that could be tribal leanings from religious or economic or geographical foundations. But the primary aim of this process, and I capitalize it, I call it the process, it's a transformation. This process will facilitate self-empowerment, encourage participation in new organizational models. And in most situations, in order for it not to be pigeonholed and burned for being a religious weird cult, it's got to engage with existing cultures with both confusion and delight. You know, Burning Man does this a little bit, other kinds of things, pop-up things do this. We want to actually engage more and more people living in gay may constructs. We want to engage them in ways that first open up their open, you know, open them up to the liminal via delightful experiences and embodied present kind of things. And then open up their eyes to transcendent experiences and new ways of being with each other. That's got to be the process. And it's going to be a process to emerge this culture. And then to just land it with your own words, have them be in a position where they can actually make consequential decisions about their own life. Yes. You know, to- 
actually not spend, uh, you know, another rat hole I've gone down recently is why this anxiety amongst millennials and Zoomers, even though they seem like they're in the fattest, dumb, and happiest civilization that humanity's ever created, where you can order up a delivery from Whole Foods in two hours, what our caveman ancestors think. And as I've been talking to psychologists about this, they keep coming back to the fact that folks who, as you say, grew up in this network culture are engaged in so many small little decisions about how to present themselves, about mm-hmm. what they should or should not say so they don't get burned at the stake, et cetera, et cetera, and that, that those of us who did not come up in that culture cannot understand how depleted their decision-making is from making gigantic numbers of what to us seem like idiotic decisions, but for them are very consequential. And so in some sense, we have to rescue them from that. Yeah. So let me throw in a couple of things here at the end around this. Okay. So we have in the zeitgeist, we we already have the templates for some of these things. Despite all my rage, I'm still just a, a rat in a cage, right? We know about the thing of like, I'm just, a, I'm just here pushing buns in a Skinner box and I'm getting my sugar pellets. So I'm getting whatever. And, and that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel empowering. You know, you're still a you're still a rat deciding to push the lever to get a sugar pellet, but that sucks, right? And so one thing about this meaningful meaning coming from making consequential decisions or choices is that if if the loop of consequentiality doesn't run through the liminal, then you're not actually getting you're not actually picking up vitamin meaning. If it runs through the liminal, then you feel much greater consequence in it. When you go to and you take define the liminal for our audience. Liminal is the unknown unknown. So you don't in this case, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. Like if you are Iron Man in an Iron Man suit with a chainsaw cutting this tree, you don't give a rip if it goes the wrong way because if it falls in your head, just just like knock it off, right? right? And so liminal is you don't quite know what's going to happen when you're in that canoe. You know you're making consequential decisions when you're going down the rapids near a rock. When you're just gliding through clear water you know, still water, it doesn't feel so consequential. You're still making little decisions about when to paddle and when not to, but it's got to be a little bit on the edge of out of your comfort zone. You don't quite know what's going to happen. And, you know, the beauty of this coming back to Chandra again, he talks about Indian music and always being the element of, of I think called upaj or like the surprise. You have to take experiments. And I was just watching a beautiful little video of a composer or conductor talking about encouraging his cello section to live dangerously, right? <laughs> Don't play it safe. You, it's got to feel like you're inches from disaster, right? And then you make real music. And so we have this experience of we need to make decisions at the boundary of safety. If we're always making decisions on this side of safety, you burn out, right? And this then pulling in another thing into the onto the table, Clockwork Orange, We didn't think that we would get here, but we've actually manufactured clockwork oranges, not by making better oranges, by making digit by digitizing the oranges and then making them clockwork. That's what we've done to an entire generation of people. We've made them all into little clockwork oranges. Oh, dearly me. For those of you who know vaguely about Clockwork Orange, read Anthony Burgess's book, which is actually even better than the rather better than the movie. 
It's better the than movie. good, but the book is better. It's very short, very accessible. But I would suggest if you want to really land what Peter just said here, it just gave me a really whoa feeling. I'm going to have to think about that one again. Anyway, Peter, this has been a hell of a good conversation. Any final <laughs> thoughts before we cast off back into our decision about what shampoo to buy? The final thing I would pull in, and the last thought is a term which I was just introduced to a few weeks ago on Twitter, which is the concept, I think the, the term someone used Carlos, I think, Carlos Perez. Oh, yes, right, good. So Carlos Perez called it the Hofstetter horror or terror, which is that if we, and this is after Hofstetter of Goldelescher Bach, right? And Strange Loops and all that. And I was like, what's what's that? And he he said, he explained as the Hofstetter terror is when we actually get to a point of understanding and we actually can understand how the mind works. And we do look inside and we realize we're just a bag of memories and some loops, some agentic loops. And here's how consciousness emerges. We've solved the binding problem. We actually can see how we are made and how it all works. And we look in the mirror and we say, is that all we are? That's the horror and the terror. Okay. That's the, the, the Hofstetter horror. Now, the interesting thing is I would posit this. I would say that we will one day cross that threshold. It may not be very soon. It could be very soon. I don't know. But I do think that from where I sit, it seems like we are going to be faced with that at some point. And the thing to do is to come up with a philosophical framework, with a life framework, with a meaning framework that lets us lead meaningful lives and continue the great project of rotism or whatever it is, taking our place in the great mandala of this universe it allows us to do that even as we stare that Hofstetter terror square on in the face. And this is this is Krishnamurti's point of that choiceless awareness. We're aware and we still lean into it and we do do the needful. I like that. I, I, I like that a lot. That's the last comment. Yeah, very, very good. Uh, all right. I think we'll wrap it up right there. Peter Wang, uh, amazing conversation. And uh, <laughs> Thanks, we, we, ref- we referenced all kinds of things. And as always, they'll be on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com. <laughs>